Vamos. Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles and overanalyzes the classic 1984 film Ghostbusters Minute by Minute. I'm Kyle, and usually this is where Brady would say, I'm Brady. But unfortunately, we had a last-second issue come up where Brady was not able to be on the show tonight. So instead, I reached out across the cosmos. I had a mind meld, my Vulcan mind meld that I had since college with my good buddy, Mark, over in California. And I said, Mark, can you do the show last minute? And of course, Mark, like a champ, always says, no problem, Kyle. I'll be there. So welcome back to the show, Mr. Mark Landry. Mark, how are you doing this evening? I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part <laughs> yeah. of it. Let's do it. Let's do it. There's no part of this that could ever go wrong. Cross the streams. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this hey, this is Mr. Stay Puffs, okay? He's a sailor. He's in New York. Yeah. We just got to show no, him I'm a good happy time. To, I'm happy to be here, man. Thanks. I'm sorry to miss Brady, but um, I, I love Ghostbusters. I'm, you know, I love your show, and I listen to it every day. I'm, I'm caught up completely to the to the minute. So um, I'm excited. Let's talk about it. Let's go. Well, thanks, man. We really appreciate you listening to the show. It feels nice to do this and have somebody actually reciprocate by listening to it. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate all the feedback you've been giving us on the show, too, because it's been constructive. It's been helpful. And, you know, when we when we talked earlier in the season, you were on for a couple of minutes earlier. Uh, we said the door's open for you to come back. And I was really hoping that we would have an opportunity to have you back on. And I'm so happy you were able to get here at the end of the show. Um, but I want to tell you, we're, we're going to be covering minute number 97 today, but I want to open the floor to talk about anything Ghostbusters related, because I know that, uh, not only are you a writer and you know a lot about, uh, the construction of a story, but you've studied Ghostbusters your entire life. And I know you have a lot probably to say about this movie. So even though we're talking about minute 97 here, I want to open it up for you to talk about anything Ghostbusters that you feel like. So at any point, if you feel like diverging or you want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, the Gozer's architecture of the altar of Gozer or anything like that, just feel free to go for it, man. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, let's get, let's get into it and, and whatever happens, uh, We'll let the magic happen. Awesome. All right, well, let's just go ahead and recap real quick uh, like we usually do here at the top of the show. So in the previous minute, we saw the Ghostbusters break Dana, Dana Barrett free from the charred, remain, charred remains of Gozer. As the minute ended, we saw that Lewis Tully had also survived the calamity and was trying to balance himself amid the chaos. At minute number 97, as Vinkman steadies Dana, he asks the Ghostbusters to check on Lewis. At 97.07, Ray takes the petrified head of Vince Clortho off of Lewis Tully. Lewis asks, what happened? At 97.11, we cut to Venkman taking Dana out of the shell of Zul and helping her to her feet. She asks, where am I? After realizing where she is, Dana looks deep into Peter Venkman's eyes and says, hi. At 91.20, excuse me, 97.25, after being helped to his feet and told that he will be all right, Lewis looks around and says, boy, the superintendent is going to be pissed. Ray helps Lewis down and asks him, if he, asks him if he is okay. Lewis asks him who they are. Ray responds that they're the Ghostbusters. Lewis asks him who does their taxes. Ray tells Lewis that he is a most fortunate individual and tells him that he has been a participant in the biggest interdimensional cross-rip since, since the Tunguska Blast of 1909. Lewis tells him that it felt great. Egon tells Lewis that they would like to get a sample of his brain tissue. And thus ends minute number 97. So again, we have kind of a comedic... Uh, fallout from the big uh, calamitous end of the movie. The big showdown was Stay Puffed atop the 55 Central Park West. So, you know, Brady and I were talking about in the previous minutes, we kind of felt that uh, the Ghostbusters getting together and kind of asking each other if they're okay. And then, you know, Peter mm. kind of forlornly looking at the, you know, charred remains of Gozer and kind of putting together that 
was Dana, excuse me, Charred Remains of Zool, and saying, well, you know, that's kind of Dana Barrett not really saying anything in the minute at all. This is all kind of like a calm down period after the big battle scene. So, Mark, as a screenwriter, mm-hmm. uh, I have a couple of questions about you, uh, about uh, screenplay structure, screenwriting structure. Um, yeah. Am I wrong to think that this is kind of a, like a cool down moment for the audience? Yeah, what we call that is a scene of aftermath. So you'll have a scene of intense conflict and you'll have a scene of aftermath which you have to sort of emotionally unpack for the audience and give them, um, you know, the time and space to process what just happened, Mm -hmm. just like the character. And the reason is because the characters need to as well. Um, Like if they just went right into the party, you know, down on the street, uh, for for one, they would have left Lewis and, uh, and Dana up there. But um, it would have felt jarry, uh, sorry, jarring and uh, and sort of clipped for the audience. Right. So we need to we we just experienced something intense. We need to all take a breath, and it's called a scene of aftermath. Gotcha. Okay, so this is is kind of a cool down moment for the audience. So yeah, that was kind of what we were thinking. That this kind of the jokes are not too intense in this area. It's just kind of a. Uh, bask in the glow, I guess, of all the effects and everything that happened previously. Moment, but um, right. And what still needed, what still needs to be wrapped up, is the Peter Dana arc. Yeah, which I think, as we talked about in Act One, going into Act Two in minutes, I don't, I can't remember if it was like twenty nine and thirty. Um, the if there is if there is a hero's journey in this screenplay. It's Peter's journey. Right. Peter Peter is the hero. Yeah. Um, and so his, and we can go into the structure of the hero's journey and, and the character's inner journey and, and all that if we want to. But he, you know, he can't, you can't end his story with Dana being dead. Right. Yeah. You know, not in a comedy. Um, that would be a real so downer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We saved New York, but you know what? Dana and Lewis are totally dead. <laughs> I mean, it would be, it would be completely, I mean... I, you know, if I were the studio, I'd give him some notes on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but luckily, you know, these, you know, these writers and the director are, you know, some of the, the best minds we've ever had, in my opinion, in the business. And they, they knew exactly what they were doing. Um, from the script, which uh, I'm sure you've read this, this part of the script as well, um, onto the, uh, the, the production and the, the ad living that they've, that they've done and, uh, and that they talk about some somewhat in the uh direct in the director's commentary um and then into the editing which uh ivan reitman talks about you know when they're peeling away the the i think you guys may have mentioned this when they're peeling away the the shell from dana uh it originally was a much shorter action and they filmed it from a few different angles and elongated the moment by cutting uh the same action a couple different angles into the the timeline so that it took longer to do and ratcheted up the tension of is she okay right emotionally we're there with peter the whole time he's worried and we're kind of sharing in it his you know mm-hmm. who is this underneath this is she going to be changed you know and then oh thank god she's she's completely okay and yeah and that little line from ray helps where he says oh it smells like barbecue dog hair oh totally yeah and then he realizes oh thank when i'm sorry yeah <laughs> with his canadian uh, sorry <laughs> So sorry. So sorry about that. Um, (laughs) But he, uh, yeah, so there's actually a cute little moment in this when, you know, I I love Sigourney Weaver. I think she plays a great, real hard ass in a lot of movies. But I think we see her at her most 
uh, archetypal vulnerable female uh, position in this movie where she comes out of, of, of Zul's shell and she just kind of is like in Peter's arms, just kind of wobbly. And she looks at him and she's like, Oh, hi. Like it's the most, <laughs> I, I guess, damsel in distress I've ever seen Sigourney Weaver in anything she's done. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about um, the development of that moment from the screenplay to the shooting of the film to the editing because you have, you know, people say films are written three times. They're written in the screenplay, they're written in production and they're written in post-production. Right. So in the screenplay, uh, when they, when they get Dana out of there, there's this whole conversation she has. Uh, well, number one, she, she and Lewis talk about whether they had sex. Um, and Lewis in the screenplay says, honestly, I never touched you. Not that I would remember, you know, And, and then she, you know, gets annoyed and, looks to Vankman and says, all right, what happened to me? <laughs> and Vankman says, nothing. We just got rid of that thing that was in your kitchen. And she says, really? Is it gone? And he says, yeah, along with most of your furniture and a lot of your personal possessions, <laughs> this, this one took some work. And by the way, um, we're going to bill you. Our fees are ridiculously high. <laughs> and she says, motioning to Lewis, she says, talk to my accountant. And he says, oh, great, I bet we could write it off as a, an act of God. <laughs> and all the Ghostbusters agree, and, and Ray says, I'll go along with that. And then that scene's over, and they cut down to the bums. I, I think you guys mentioned the, the two bums. Oh, that yeah, that very strange scene, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, they cut down to the bums, and they have a little little scene where they're joking about, you know, where all this marshmallow come from. And then you cut to the the outside of the building, and everyone's coming out in the big celebration. So that's the screenplay version. When they're shooting, um, I'm sure you guys have seen the deleted scenes in the DVD, there is another scene where Dana and Lewis talk about whether or not they had sex also. Mm. And in that one, they played it a little bit differently from the script. Lewis says, did we? And she says, no, Lewis. She thinks about it for a second. And you can tell she kind of knows that they did. Yeah. Uh-huh. But she doesn't, want, <laughs> she doesn't want to admit to it. She's like, no, Lewis. No. And then she walks away and he's scratching his head like, I could have sworn we could. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, th- those are yeah. actually pretty funny gags, I think, as far as the screenplay mm-hmm. goes. The whole conversation about it being an act of God and him being the accountant and how much they're going to bill for her and everything. Uh, do you think this was a situation where it just didn't play in, in the audience test screenings and they decided to pull it out? Because the, the flow of this movie is so, it, like, the, the, the pacing of it is perfect. The pacing of it here at the end. Yeah. Really great. What I gathered from the director's commentary was that, you know, you guys talked a lot about how Bill Murray would improvise and ad lib. And so would Rick Moranis. Mm -hmm. And and so when Bill Murray was off, he was like sort of, you know, backburnered because he had this romantic moment with Dana and he was off to the side. Uh, Ivan Reitman said that was Rick's, time to kind of go crazy and he just kept coming up with these lines they had like he had this day of just coming up with great lines so it was like you know who does your taxes <laughs> you know it was like he's just making stuff funny stuff up to say you know yeah um so that's what i gather from anyway from the director's commentary and i don't know how much of that stuff they had i don't I have no idea how much of it ended up on a cutting room floor floor but you're right for pacing they um uh, you know, Ivan Reitman really uh, worked with the editor to pace it out, and it's it's just pitch perfect. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very you know um, watching it minute by minute, I kind of pick up on the you know, some weird stuff here. Like Peter Venkman hasn't really talked to Dana Barrett as Dana Barrett since the water fountain scene uh, earlier in the movie. You know, he's of course he mm-hmm. talked to the you know the the gatekeeper at one point. They haven't seen each other for a very long period of time. There's not a whole lot of dialogue or discussion between them here at the end. Really, there's no lines at all. It's just her saying like, "Oh, hi" to him him breaking her out. Like Peter doesn't have a lot of dialogue here at the end of the movie, you know? Um, right. But we totally buy that he has earned the kiss that he gets from her down on the street here in a minute, uh, you know, through the heroic action there at the end. So do, do you think that, does this fit into the normal hero's journey archetype that a screenwriter will go by? Uh, very interesting way that they're handling that in this film, actually. And I'm glad you brought it up because, um, you know, if you, if you have read The Hero's Journey um, by Christopher Vogler, you know that there's like this whole set of steps that the hero goes through that's very, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker. Uh, sort of Star Wars, A New Hope hits all of those. And with, with a comedy like this, and a guy like Peter Venkman, it's not going to be, you know, you're, you're going to have to have a, uh, that outer journey that he goes on, like starting the company with these guys and, you know, busting ghosts and that adventure in Zool and Gozer, that has nothing to do with Dana Barrett. Right. So that's all about his inner journey. And uh, that's not covered as much in Vogler's book, but this other guy that Vogler uh, sort of collaborates with sometimes named Michael Haig, he talks about this, the, uh, the character's inner journey. So... If if the listeners will bear with us for a second, I'll go through quickly the six stages of the inner journey. Oh, I'm sure they won't mind. We have a pretty intellectual audience out there. They're proven to be pretty smart. So by all means, <laughs> okay. the floor is yours, Mark. <laughs> well, I'm in your audience, oh, so yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I was just, you know, I just... I was talking with... about you when I meant the intellectual audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm like, I don't I don't know. Your bar's pretty low for intellectual because I was just <laughs> playing with my dog for a half hour before this started. Anyway... Um, Anyway, the, the inner journey is, so stage one is living fully within identity. This is like the character's ego. Stage two is getting a glimpse of longing or destiny, the glimpse of their essence. So it's about this, the inner journey is this wrestling between the character's ego and their essence. So who they should be and who they think they are, kind of. So stage three is moving toward the essence without leaving identity. And that is when Peter is... He, he's come from this place of being, um, you know, we talked about him at some point being a little rapey. And I, I wouldn't say he's a sexual predator, but he's definitely a player. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just this out-to-score kind of guy. You know, he's got some game. And when he meets Dana, he's presented with a reflection of um, sort of a mature woman. Uh, you know, it's Sigourney Weaver for a reason, you know. Um She's sophisticated, she's intellectual, she's strong, she's smart, she's not the blonde college student. Um, and he's, this is a challenge for him because it's a challenge for who he is as a person. So he has this glimpse of this idea of being with this woman who is a, a real match, you know, and a real challenge for him. And stage four of this inner journey would be fully committing to the essence, but growing in fear. So he's faced with um, the big change and in the middle, and this is where it intersects with the hero's journey. The hero's journey, at the middle, he's faced with the, the supreme ordeal. Now, 
in the middle of Ghostbusters, it's Peter Venkman knocking on uh, Dana Barrett's door, and Zool answers hmm. and says, let's have sex. And this, this guy who has all this game and is trying to sleep around is faced with the biggest challenge of his character, which is, am I going to take advantage of this woman? And he chooses, no, I'm not going to do it. It's a difficult choice and it's played for comic effect, but his character has to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Which, at any point up to this moment, up to, or before meeting Dana, he would have said yes. Right, yeah. Um, I, and so you're, he's then faced with the, the consequences of that, which is he's fully committed to growing as a person. Um, and then stage five is living, with, you know, living one's truth with everything to lose. And the journey uh, is completed when he's achieved his destiny and, you know, solved the other hero things, which is like the road back and the resurrection and returning with the elixir. When you said he earns that kiss, you know, with the heroic action of saving the city um, and busting her out of that shell, he's, he's uh, fully matured as a person and as a character. And he's, he's, even though she hasn't witnessed it, any of that, uh, firsthand because she's been possessed. Um, we as the audience feel that he's fully changed and can can give her the benefit of the doubt that she understands that. So one of the cool things about doing this podcast is going back and looking at Ghostbusters with a more of a um, adult and critical eye, I guess. And up mm-hmm. until this point in time, having this discussion with you right now, the I never realized that really the I guess the moment when he does have that heroic journey is it's really more of an internal moral thing that he has to get over with the decision to not sleep with a demon, you know, because he <laughs> yeah. knows the woman, uh, Dana Barrett, he wants her heart. He doesn't want her body at that point. Right. And that realization of that, you're telling me that's really his hero's journey is that moment right there. Correct. That's his big change. Mm-hmm. That's his midpoint Supreme ordeal where he commits to changing his life. Very interesting. Uh, Cause yeah. I always would have said that the hero, the heroic moment is when he kind of sacrifices himself on top of 55, uh, whatever the, the building. Okay. The, uh, the, yeah, the, the, Evo, yeah, thank yeah. You. the Evo Shandor building, the moment they, they decide to cross the streams is more of like a sacrificial moment for them. That's what I would have picked as his heroic moment. But, uh, well, that's the, that's the hero. That's the heroic moment on the outer journey. Okay. That's gotcha. like with the ghosts and, but what his, his committing to change mm. internally mm-hmm. is um, it, it's begin. His commitment begins when he decides not to sleep with Dana. Very interesting, and that that's something I I never would have picked up on before. I, I just thought it was uh you know uh, a, another joke about her floating above the covers. I really <laughs> didn't put together two and two. On it's that, just so. my personal it's my personal theory. No, but I, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, if you look at Austin Powers, I had the same feeling when I saw you know he's in bed with. Um, uh, drunk Elizabeth Hurley. Right, yeah. And she's like, let's do it. And he's like, no, you're drunk. I can't do it. Even though he's like this, you know, let's shag baby kind of guy. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, no, I, I guess to learn. Yeah, that's, that's that's something else, Mark. Learn something new every day. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I learn a lot from playing with my dog. Yeah. <laughs> What's your dog's name, by the way? Obi. Obi Kenobi. Oh, that's adorable. That's adorable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, that's very cool. Uh, kind of going through the hero's journey here and and the end of the movie and how it plays into that. Um, let me just open the floor to you. Is there anything else in the movie that you wanted to talk about, or anything else in the movie that really sticks out as like a cool moment to you, or something that made you fall in love with Ghostbusters? Uh, 
It's so much. I mean, I, I was five when I saw Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. as I think m- many of us were. And I think, I don't know if it was just me and like the way I kind of was at the time or, you know, it's anyone our age, but Peter Venkman became sort of like just my role model. Yeah. And it was because it's Bill Murray. I mean, it's not really Venkman because Venkman, when we talk about Venkman, he's really kind of this flawed guy. Mm-hmm. But, um, I guess it may have been uh, seeing other Bill Murray films, but it was really Ghostbusters that was the the thing that did it for me. And this, you know, it just made me fall in love with Bill Murray. I mean, who doesn't love Bill Murray? He's the best. He's the greatest. He's he continues the, the to greatest. be the greatest. And I'm so happy for him that he got to see his Chicago Cubs win the World Series this year. <laughs> and, you know, see him to interrupt a White House, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> The press, yeah, yeah, room. yeah. The meet, the yeah. meet the press thing to like you know uh, talk about it. But uh, it's it's been a very cool year to be a Bill Murray fan and see that whole thing through his eyes. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I um I love what was going on in the world of Ghostbusters because I've always been interested in you know, with a skeptical eye, like the supernatural and and all that stuff. And I guess I kind of loved. Uh, what Dan Aykroyd brought to the lore and, and the screenplay and, you know, uh, you know, the whole, the, the, the depth of like the cult of Gozer and all the existing lore that was out there for the movie really interested me. But I do agree with yes. you that the thing that keeps me coming back to the movie is the staying power of Bill Murray's performance as Peter Venkman, this dry wit uh, that he had throughout the movie, his improv, you know, there's something, little nuances that I catch every time that I watch it now, you know, like little things I maybe didn't notice before that there's a lot going on with Peter Venkman, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. of course, like you're telling me right now, about you know his decision not to sleep with Dana Baird at that point was the big character moment. Something new to learn every time you watch Ghostbusters. Yeah, but <laughs> well, yeah, it's like the Thorazine thing. Well, he took Thorazine there. Yeah, like he didn't. It, it, he took. He didn't drive there. It wasn't in the car. He doesn't have a car. It wasn't like in the glove compartment for other reasons. It was you know he took Thorazine to a date. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't leave the date and go get it. You know. That, so, it. I mean, if you really think, and this is totally like ridiculous level of like analysis but if you really think about it he went there to date raper <laughs> and he decided not to and it was a really it was a big moment for him um but you know I, i'm i'm joking but yeah i mean can you read it any other way no um, no i mean that we were trying to justify in our heads when we were watching that minute and the closest thing we can think of is like oh he went down to the i don't know bodega down on the corner and just like bought some thorazine because he's a doctor maybe and you know just like making jumping through like doing mental gymnastics to try to justify yeah, this yeah total gymnastics <laughs> and this is and this is kind of like the blessing and the curse of these wonderful shows where we get to nerd out and like pick it apart you know if if Ivan Reitman were hearing this right now he'd be like oh you know can't you just give it to me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, because like I, I, look, I write screenplays and like, there's always stuff that I just hope the audience gives to me Yeah. Mm-hmm. because I can't make it work otherwise. Now let's on that note, let's, let's give credit to, uh, Ivan Reitman, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and say that there's a lot of stuff in Ghostbusters that they, they did, they crafted and, and, and wove together so well that if you really wanted to pick it apart, you could find problems with like, sure, you know, they really had to get this person. They had to get Peter from Dana's apartment all the way to the, the Ghostbuster house, the, the firehouse, you know, across town at the right moment for the grid to be turned off. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? You know, these are like story, you know, story meeting kind of things. Yeah. But um, it, the logistics of stories ends up being a very difficult thing to do. And they did a great job. This is, you know, 
really seamless it, 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 really smooth yeah um so i i'd like to give them credit for that another thing i'd like to ask you if you and brady and i don't know the answer to this if you and brady have looked into this or if um dan Aykroyd left it open just because that's what you really should do as a writer to give you know uh importance to the the action that's important and then let the audience just imagine the other stuff but did you guys find anything about uh, Zool and Vince Clortho that that sort of spoke to who they were, besides minions of Gozer in a general way and like looking like terror dogs? Did they used to be humanoid? Well, okay. So what we understand is, um, and we've read a lot of supplemental supplemental material on this. So we haven't found anything that was specifically in the screenplay or Dan Aykroyd's notes that speaks to this. But uh, in the um, Tobin Spirit Guide that's come out, that's been kind of like retconned as a uh, source for all this stuff. They're like mm-hmm. high priests in the Church of Gozer, if you will, possessor demons that. Um, uh, Zul is more of a female entity. Vince Clortho is more of a male entity. And Vince Clortho is, was written to be kind of like dim-witted uh, because mm-hmm. originally he was supposed to be played by John Candy. So their mm-hmm. idea was that John Candy, once he was possessed by Vince Clortho, was going to be just this bumbling idiot because physically they felt that he would you know, represent that a little bit more. So uh, mm-hmm. to his personality, that's kind of how that was written. Zul was written to be a little bit more clever because Sigourney Weaver was going to be playing her. But uh, to their entities, were they humans? Uh, no, it seems that they were always in terror dog form and that the terror dog form was uh, – they were high priests in the cult of Gozer, basically, in Gozer's mm-hmm. dimension. So, um, and, and Yeah, in Gozer's dimension. I think that's an important point. Yes, to, yeah. To, because they – you know, there were there was the cult of Gozer on Earth. Yes, by Evo Shandor. Try, yeah, Evo Shandor was trying to summon Gozer here. And like you guys said, I mean, I think I, I, think I learned this from you guys, that, you know, they did all these rituals and didn't really pan out until 1984 when, uh, you know, Evo Shandor and all these people who tried to get Gozer here were already dead. Mm-hmm. Gozer finally, like, you know, because of, I guess... Uh, relativity goes or finally got the message and showed up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think uh, from my understanding of it, the, the uh, top of 55 central park West was, I think uh, race says it's something like, you know, that they used to detect quasars or pulsars in space or something like that. Um, it almost seems like there was maybe a long distance time travel type thing. Just the process for Gozer just happened to take that long for her to get the message and then manifest into uh, into our dimension. But, you know, one thing I will give credit to the 2016 Ghostbusters movie is that Rowan, the bad guy character in it, I felt uh, kind of served that underlying question here of, like, how did all this start? Why is it in 1984 that all of a sudden Ghost, Ghost starts showing up? Uh, and I, I liked that Rowan had the ability, he was like a reverse Ghostbuster that actually brought ghosts into our world. And mm-hmm. I think the actor that played him did a fantastic job with that, you know, and my feelings on that yeah. movie have changed a little bit, but um, but I, I I did like that aspect of that movie. Whereas in the 1984 Ghostbusters, it's just things just kind of start happening, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, yeah. I, I go but I go back and forth on you know how much information is too much information. Oh to yeah, enjoy it. sure. Yeah, um, but I do like to think. But but this is how, and I think you know explaining it just enough. That the fans, like you and I, like fanboys, will ask each other, well, what do you think it is? You know, what do you think it, they mean? And, like, have these conversations. I think that's engagement. Oh, yeah. I think that that's really, you know, like, oh, you know, as we're talking now, like, it, it, 
it becomes clear that the containment unit blowing up and all these ghosts, uh, you know, going everywhere and getting free that they've been trapping has nothing to do with Evo Shandor and the Cult of Gozer at all. It's just a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. You know, it didn't intensify the calling of Gozer by the antenna building because, you know, uh, Zul and Vince Clortho were already there. They were just, you know, it, Gozer was just waiting for the key master and the gatekeeper to do the deed and unlock the door. I imagine a, a, an entity like Gozer probably has all the time in the world to sit around and wait for things to happen. So she's probably just you know, on her throne in another dimension saying like, well, you know, the chips are where they are. We'll just wait for these people to stumble into them and, you know, the dominoes yeah. will continue to fall. So That's funny. I wonder how busy Gozer is because there are, there are billions and billions of worlds to conquer. You know, an entity like that, I mean, does it, uh, you know, it's... I, Did Gozer just come from another planet? Like... The sh- you know, the schlubs and the zools knew what it was like to be roasted in the depths of the slur that day. Well, did she just come from another planet doing that thing? Yeah, we, do you mean she was an entity on that planet before, or was she, like, trans-dimensional? Trans-dimensional, like, did she just come from, when she arrives in New York... Oh, I gotcha, okay. Had, had you know, before Vins and and Zool break out of their statues... Yeah. And, and like, open the gate for Gozer... Had they just done that? Do they do that every week? Uh, you know, did they did they, they, did they just done it in some other dimension on some other planet? Did they conquer a new planet? Yeah. So there is a little bit of material that um, I had actually read this somewhere before it was in the New Tobin Spirit Guide, but they bring in the um, god Tiamat into the backstory. So Tiamat and Gozer are, sis- are sisters. Uh, mm-hmm. and they were both worshipped by the Hittites, the Sumerians, at the same time. I can't remember who Hittite is in what religion uh, uh, Tiamat is, but I believe that Tiamat was like kind of like a um, an all-father female character that kind of like mm-hmm. split its own divinity and then went out into the world, and I think that... That's the real mythology. The mythology in Yeah, Ghost- we learned that in art history class. Oh, great. Okay, yeah, yeah. so you're so you yeah. aware of Tiamat. Um, in Ghostbusters, the way they use Tiamat is Tiamat's followers actually overpowered Gozer's followers uh, back in the you know uh, uh, Bronze Age or something, and mm-hmm. cast Gozer out into the universe, and that's why she's the Traveler. What we don't know is if the Traveler visited like another planet in another dimension and conquered the Shubs or conquered the Zools, and then you know came to you know New York City after Had that. Had to be. Yeah, yeah. Had to be. That's 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 what I'm reading. I, I, into I think it. as one of many stops. Right. Yeah. You know? Because she's she can't be much of a traveler if she doesn't if she's been to two places. Yeah, no, yeah, conquering infinite worlds, if you will, and then she finally yeah, yeah. shows up to this one, and the guys that stop her are a bunch of paranormal exterminators. You know. Well, yeah. To, to be fair to Gozer, I think she was pretty tired by that point. Oh, probably so. I think she, you know, she wasn't on her best day. Her best work was behind her at that point. <laughs> right. By 1984, New York, she was just kind of like, you know what, guys, I'm not really into this like I used to be. You can only right. roast so many shubs in the in the in the belly of a slore. I know once you've been a slore. Yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you how do you compete with that? It's like doing the sequel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, in the sequel of Ghostbusters, they replaced Stay Puft with a giant, uh, you know, uh, Statue of Liberty. So at this point, she's showing up as Stay Puft, uh, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man to stomp all over New York, and she's like, "My heart is just not in this anymore. Is this what I'm doing? My best work, my best work is behind me." So. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I mean, I hate to bag on humans, but you know, we may, maybe we weren't the most fun people to conquer probably not i would imagine in all the infinite worlds you could destroy that new york would just be kind of like a fun little weekend jaunt you know then probably not a whole lot of challenge there you know but. showed her though yeah, we did she ain't coming back 
But, uh, you know, it's funny, actually, in the, the Ghostbusters video game, they came out in 2009, mm-hmm. they do a fantastic job of tying Ghostbusters 1 and Ghostbusters 2 together, uh, so much so that the pink slime that is in Ghostbusters 2, uh, they actually pull back that that was all uh, uh, collected by Evo Shandor in the Cult of Gozer. They summoned a slore into our dimension and then bled it. And that slime mm. is a product of them basically like slitting the throat of this slore, which is like a giant lizard type creature. Uh, and then they use that was going to be their ultimate goal was to use this pink slime as kind of a um, magnifier for all the negative energy they were going to channel in by the, their like dark rituals and whatnot. Uh, so it, 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 very, very cool use of the existing lore out there and tying it in. I really wish that third that video game had been like an animated movie or something because there's some really cool ideas in it. Oh yeah, that's super interesting. And I, when you guys brought that up, I went and watched it. I watched, you know, that person's playthrough video, yeah, the mm-hmm. whole the whole game. I skipped around a little bit, I have to admit, but it was really great. It did feel like Ghostbusters three. Yeah, um, yeah. The, uh, the the cut scenes and stuff and the little dialogue bits are a lot of fun. Watching someone play a video game for a while gets old after a while, but I, mm-hmm. I'll say that you can definitely tell that they put in the effort to really construct a screenplay for that, which a lot of video games don't. And I give, uh, you know, uh, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd all the credit in the world for sitting down and being like, how can we tie all this stuff together and make it interesting? So, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, such, such a loss. Uh, Harold Ramis. Oh, such, I, a, such a talent. Still bummed out about it. You know, I tied him into all the deaths in 2016, even though it didn't actually happen in 2016. It's such a bummer that it echoes over into this year. And I, you know, miss mm-hmm. him just as much as I do Prince or David Bowie or anybody else. But uh, I, I wish that uh, he somehow could have been involved in the new movie and would be involved in what they have going forward with the franchise. So, and just, you know, it's, it's sad to just miss him in general. I mean, Groundhog's Day was so fantastic. I actually love the Analyze This and Analyze That movies. I think those are pretty funny. But uh, Yeah, Multiplicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Multiplicity. Yeah, yeah. Stripes. Uh, this, uh, few people have the comedic chops that uh, Harold Ramis did. So, yeah. It's a real shame. But uh, yeah. Man. I highly recommend, I recommend reading his daughter's blog post about him. Oh, I haven't and read that. She, is she it a, was, a famous blogger or was that a story? I trip? don't think it was a blog. Maybe it wasn't a blog post. It was like an op-ed. It was like, you know, when Ghostbusters 2016 was coming out. And it was sort of like what, you know, what my father meant to me, what my, you know, what him being a Ghostbuster was to my life growing up as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very, very sweet. And uh, she talked about, you know, all the kids in the neighborhood and Halloween, you know, uh, loving Egon and, you know, yeah, just such a great guy and seems like a really, uh, a really great father as well. And, and really the character of Egon too. I mean, whenever my friends and I would play Ghostbusters, Egon was always my favorite because he was the <laughs> scientist of the group. And as much as I can't comprehend a lot of science, I like to tell myself that science is important. So I, you know, try mm-hmm. to invest myself in whoever the scientific character of the group is. Donatello was my favorite, you know, uh, oh, cool. yeah. you know, the, all those characters. But I think that there was a long lasting, uh, effect on people that grew up in the eighties of idolizing scientists uh, in characters like Egon that I think Caro's mm-hmm. ca- carries through, you know, to, to today. So, I agree. I think that's uh, we could we could take some lessons from that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Mark, uh, a lot of fun talking to you here. Um, you know, b- Likewise. B- b- before we end here, uh, can you let everybody in the listening audience who maybe missed your first time here on our show uh, kind of tell them like who you are and, and where to find out about you on the internet? Sure, um, Mark Landry. I'm from Louisiana. Uh, went to college with Kyle and uh, and Kyle and Brady and I have been friends for a long time. Um, and came out to Los Angeles. I'm a screenwriter. Uh, I 
co-wrote Teen Beach Movie on the Disney Channel, and I wrote and produced a graphic novel, um, a post-Katrina New Orleans uh, vampire story called Bloodthirsty, One Nation Underwater, which is available on Amazon, and you can look me up on IMDb. Awesome. And, you know, you did a couple of shows with uh, the friend of our show, Brad Mendenhall, who does the Cosmic yes. Geppetto podcast. And uh, I, I don't think I've mentioned it on the show here, but those were fantastic uh, shows. Those that were you so did. much fun. Yeah. He's so much fun. You guys were, I had to judge, you guys had Rin Stimpy yeah. versus uh, Pinky in the Brain. The, Pinky in the brain, and I had to sort of judge. I was like the judge, and you guys were the lawyers, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like who's like what's better? And I chose uh, Ren and Stimpy because you know they're just better. It's it's clearly the superior cartoon. I, I had to take that one when we were talking about it, but I think Brady put up a pretty good defense. And Pinky in the brain's nothing he to did. to laugh at, but I mean Ren and Stimpy For is sure. is the gold standard that a lot of modern uh, cartoons are judged by. But uh, mm-hmm. you also did an interview just kind of about who you are in the process of writing Bloodthirsty One Nation Underwater. And I would tell people that if they want to learn a little bit more about the process that you went into in writing that story and the influences of it, that that episode with Brad is is a, is a lot of fun. He's he's a great interview. He's a really nice guy, and uh, I thought it was a fantastic uh, episode that you did with him. He really is. I highly recommend uh, his podcast, the, po- the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Yeah. It's really, really cool. Yeah, it is. It is. All right, Mark, we well, got anything else before we head out? That's it, Kyle. I just, you know, I, I so appreciate that you guys did this show. I'm such a big fan of Ghostbusters. I'm such a big fan of you and Brady, and I had a lot of fun uh, listening to this. And uh, yeah. so on behalf of your fans... Just want to thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it's, the opportunity. Come on, it's been come on. so much fun to do it, and you know, uh, I always value your opinion. So hearing that come from you, and you know, hearing that come from a lot of other people, it really makes the whole process worth it. So, all right, well, my computer's telling me that we have run out of <laughs> drive space, so <laughs> we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show, and Thanks, uh, for Mark and myself, we're here to remind you that death is but a door, time a window. We'll be back. Ghostbusters Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a patron of Ghostbusters Minute and gain access to exclusive weekly bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash gbminute. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at ghostbustersminute at gmail.com and visit us online at ghostbustersminute.com, facebook.com slash ghostbustersminute, twitter.com slash gbminute, and look us up on Instagram at ghostbustersminute. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Audionautics, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License. Thank you.